This is Spy Gals, a podcast made by young women to help encourage and facilitate the conversation around national security amongst young people. Welcome back to Spy Gals. I'm Emily. And I'm Chloe. Today, we're going to be diving into Russian espionage in America. Russian spies have been an issue in national security for decades, reaching a peak during the Cold War. We're going to tell the stories of four different government intelligence agents from the 80s and 90s who, for various reasons, turned to spy for the KGB and the Russian government. We'll be looking into each of their cases in terms of their motive for spying and what eventually got them caught to determine what factors make espionage in our country possible. Additionally, we'll investigate what factors, if any, are in place now to prevent cases like these from happening again. The first spy we'll talk about is Richard Miller, whose story is straight out of a spy movie. Once recruited to the FBI, he soon began to establish a record of lack of judgment and disciplinary errors. He even committed petty crimes and used the FBI database to run checks for a private investigator. His actions, however, weren't enough for the FBI to fire him, so instead he was transferred to the Los Angeles base, which was the epicenter of foreign counterintelligence and a prime spot for spies to target. One day, in 1984, Miller answered a call from a Russian woman named Svetlana Ogorodnikov who hoped to turn him to work for the KGB. This phone call marked the start of their love affair and Miller's life as a spy against his own government. He claimed that he wanted to turn his career around by recruiting Ogorodnikov to work for the U.S., but he still gave her classified documents in exchange for $65,000. Miller himself eventually came forward to his supervisor after Ogorodnikov planned a trip to Vienna. You might be wondering how Miller got hired in the first place if he wound up becoming a spy. What's relatively unfortunate is that, in the beginning at least, he seemed to be a model agent since he was hired right out of college. Miller was hired in 1963, but the National Crime Information Center, the criminal database used to search names, cars, or missing items, was launched in 1967 and could not have been used to run a background check on Miller. Though he did not have a record at the time, as he began to commit crimes as an agent, the program was still in its early stages. Nowadays, it's no secret that the FBI and CIA have rigoring hiring processes. To put things into perspective, let's talk about the hiring process today. To be hired by the FBI, it's expected that you have a four-year degree, at least three years of full-time paid work experience, and are able to pass a physical fitness test and an extensive background check. In comparison to the average American civilian, to quote Supervisory Special Agent Brooke Gaynor, everyone who works at the FBI has a top-secret security clearance. The background check is pretty robust for any employee. It includes a polygraph, drug test, credit check, interviews with friends, neighbors, your babysitter, and a wide range of people who know you. We are also interested in knowing about your foreign contacts, family, contacts you made when you studied abroad. It's not meant to be nosy or embarrass anyone, but to ensure that the people who work here uphold our core values, fidelity, bravery, and integrity, especially integrity. Additionally, to be a special agent, as opposed to holding a professional role, you must be between the ages of 23 and 36 and a half. Looking at all of these factors, I think it's safe to say that Miller's background check would have brought up a number of red flags under today's standards. 
Even though he made it past the hiring process, it's clear that Miller was not fit or qualified to work in the FBI once he actually began working there. In college, he had no criminal record and was a good student in the college environment. However, once in a high-stress environment and handling sensitive information, Miller cracked under the pressure. I mean, his own attorney, Joel Levine, said, My client is not a perfect man. He was, more or less, a bad FBI agent. The second agent we'll be looking into is Earl Pitts, who serves as a perfect example for why we need employee evaluations in the FBI and CIA. Pitts was a well-liked agent who was repeatedly promoted in the FBI. He was the model agent up until the point he decided to recruit himself to be a spy for the KGB. Years later, Pitts said that he was overwhelmed by a sense of rage at the FBI and that, quote, he was shoved by the bureaucracy and he shoved back. He reached out to a Russian official and asked to be put in contact with the KGB officer. Over the course of seven years, he gave classified information to the KGB in exchange for $224,000. Eventually, the FBI became suspicious of a mole because many of their operations were compromised. They had just started to investigate when the same Russian official that Pitts originally approached told the FBI to investigate Pitts' financial and travel records. After tracking his records and deeming them unusual for someone at his pay grade, the FBI investigators posed as KGB agents in order to catch Pitts in the act. Pitts fell into their trap and, over the course of their investigation, made 22 drops of classified information to the undercover agents in exchange for money. On the day of one of his drops, the FBI caught him in the act and charged him with espionage. Essentially, the FBI would have never caught Pitts without the tip from the Russian official that decided to work for the United States. Knowing this, we looked into what the FBI does now to evaluate its employees. The United States Office of Personnel Management, known as the OPM, was founded in 1979, but the premise of the organization has been around since 1883 when the Civil Service Act established the Civil Service Commission. The OPM basically serves as the Human Resources Department for the entire federal government. They work closely with the individual HR departments of each government branch and organization to ensure a fair and secure hiring process, establish insurance and retirement benefits for hired employees, and help provide guidelines for annual reviews of federal employees. The goal of these reviews is to make sure that each branch of the government aligns itself with the same overall goals. They're usually conducted by the individual HR departments of each agency to help employees understand their roles, set expectations, and hold employees accountable for their actions. They aren't meant to be punitive, rather constructive in strengthening the agencies and are also used in terms of merit-based promotions. All that being said, they're, primi they're primarily evaluations of an employee's performance in the agency, not their financial or personal situations. Nonetheless, they're still useful in keeping every employee in check. Next, we're going to talk about Aldrich Ames, who worked as a CIA agent specializing in Russian intelligence. He was often assigned to work abroad, which is where he was first recruited by a KGB agent. Because he worked in Russian intelligence, he was encouraged to make contacts with Soviet agents in order to gain information, but Ames did not report all of his contacts. Throughout his nine years of spying, Ames made $2.5 million and was on track to make even more when he was caught, which makes him the highest paid spy in American history. Ames even went on to buy a sports car and a $540,000 house all in cash. Now, as far as we've been able to determine through our research, the CIA and FBI don't administer annual finance checks now or back in the 80s and 90s, 
so these expenditures wouldn't have necessarily raised questions in the CIA. Instead of detailing U.S. operations or new technology, Ames sold names of spies within the Russian government. Ames's espionage led to the deaths and imprisonments of many informants working for the United States. In 1986, it was these disappearances of sources that prompted the CIA to start an investigation to find out why their sources had been compromised. The team concluded that the cause for the compromised operations was either that the KGB infiltrated the CIA's communications and read the traffic, and therefore got access to CIA documents, or that there was a mole in the CIA. Next, the team decided to look for a mole by figuring out which agents had access to the specific information that was being leaked. Ames became their number one suspect because of the information that he had access to in his position. Then, the investigators began to look into his financial and travel records, and they found a correlation between his meetings with the Russian diplomat and large deposits in his bank account. Armed with this evidence, the CIA team alerted the FBI to make the arrest. After finding out he made plans to travel to Moscow for business, the FBI made the arrest because they feared if he left the country, they would never see him again. Once caught, Ames pled guilty to the charges and is spending life in prison. He even confessed that he had a plan with his KGB contacts to frame the lead investigator in his case for all of his crimes. As we mentioned before, part of the FBI and CIA hiring process is administering a polygraph test. There are two types of polygraph tests used in the process. One, known as the lifestyle polygraph, reads for a history of substance abuse in the last seven years, whereas the other asks questions relating to knowledge of counterintelligence. For obvious reasons, the question asked specifically aren't available to the general public. Part of the goal of the polygraph is to establish a sense of the applicant's character, but how accurate is it really? The polygraph reads minor changes in your heart rate and sweat levels to determine if you're answering the question truthfully. These readings, however, are notoriously inaccurate, and the polygraph has been under a lot of scrutiny recently in terms of its accuracy. This goes two ways. If you have a candidate who reads well in the polygraph but is actually a notorious liar or a bad person, you've let someone with bad intentions into our in intelligence infrastructure. On the other side of things, you could have a candidate who has good intentions but shows up as a liar on the polygraph, and now you've turned away a very viable candidate. Let the record show that inconclusive results lead to a reschedule to determine if the applicant gets approved or denied. One previous applicant to the FBI stated, I was called a lazy, lying, drug-dealing junkie by a man who doesn't know me, my stellar background, or my societal contributions. Despite having all the other aforementioned qualifications, he was rejected from the FBI simply because he failed the polygraph test. With that perspective in mind, what does this say about our priorities as a society? Do we really value previous drug history over a laundry list of other outstanding qualities? Obviously, we have to be really careful with who we give access to, inf to sensitive information, but I think it's something interesting to consider. I'm not sure that the polygraph test is the best way to determine one's, to determine one's character when it comes to things like this, but there has to be a better way. Speaking of evaluation of character, our next agent is a good example of someone who passed the polygraph in order to get hired, but definitely deteriorated in his intentions. Robert Hansen worked in the FBI Counterintelligence Unit, focusing on Soviet intelligence from 1979 to 2001. Motivated by money, he volunteered to spy for Russia. He gave information on the identities of U.S. agents, U.S. nuclear operations, and the existence of an FBI tunnel built under the Russian embassy. He spied on and off for decades before he was caught. In 1981, his wife caught him sending classified documents and urged him to stop. 
but in 1985, he resumed spying for the KGB. Then, in 1991, he broke off his relationship with the KGB, but eight years later, he began spying again, except this time for the Russian intelligence agency. Finally, in 2000, the FBI identified him from a fingerprint and from a tape recording given to the FBI by a Russian operative. After this, the FBI began an investigation into Hansen, and a year later, he was transferred to an obscure FBI office in order to diminish his information access. That same year, the FBI caught Hansen making a document drop in exchange for $50,000. Finally, in 2002, he was sentenced to life in prison. So, looking at all of these cases, what have we learned about our national security processes and the people responsible for these processes? I think there are definitely places where we can tighten and loosen a few things. These agents didn't cause the government to immediately implement new policies in their conduct, but they definitely point out a number of flaws. I think we both agree that there needs to be an alternative to the polygraph. Whether that be improving the polygraph test itself or moving to a whole new system, there are too many instances where the test can go wrong for it to be foolproof. Just to remind everyone, the two polygraph tests investigate the applicant's history of drug and alcohol use and knowledge of counterintelligence. I obviously use the term foolproof lightly because the government is so extensive in its hiring process for national intelligence. But the polygraph shouldn't be the only reason you're immediately cut from the application process. Adding on to that, I think it's difficult to determine how someone is going to behave in the field, either literally as a special agent or even working a professional desk job, until you really put them into that situation. Working in intelligence is such a high-stress job that even the strongest of people could crack under the pressure. As we've seen with the four agents we've talked about, they all had their own motives for turning to work for the Russians, money being the forerunner. So I think running more frequent finance evaluations on employees would be effective without being too invasive. Less to question, why did you buy that $70,000 car? And more to ask, how did you afford that $70,000 car? Especially because the FBI and CIA know how much they pay their employees. Finally, I think it's obvious that there are checks and tests in place in order to stop potential espionage, and that the FBI and CIA could always do more in terms of keeping tabs on their employees. The reality is that no matter what preventative measures are in place, people will find their way around them in order to gain information. On that note, we're going to wrap up this episode of Spy Gals. We hope anyone listening has learned a little bit about the motives behind espionage and what the United States intelligence agencies are doing in order to minimize national security risks. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening!